there's an old Taiwanese movie uh, based off of this kind of this picture book. I don't even know how I remember this movie. It's so long ago. But <clears throat> the story goes about, it's about these two people, this one guy, one girl. Uh, and they have these chance meetings, and they eventually fall in love with one another. And just like any romantic comedy, it's kind of at first, you know, they don't like each other, but after a while, they start to grow uh, to be fond of each other, and they start to fall in love. Now, in this story, these two guys, they start to kind of come across in these kind of, I guess, fate type of moments where they didn't expect to see each other, but they run into each other. And as they start to like one another, we're introduced two other characters. And these two characters, they're not the main ones, they're side characters, but each one of them has a crush on one of the main characters. Okay? But as the story goes, these two side characters, they find out that they like these two main characters, and they need to work together to prevent them from getting together, to prevent. So they actually start to develop a friendship. Uh, they start to hang out. And believe it or not, over time, they start to fall in love. And it's funny because how the movie goes is you're first kind of led to believe that those two original characters are the main ones, but then later on, they become the main characters. And actually, in a point in that movie, they say something like this to one another. They go, you know what? It's not that they're the main characters who are destined for each other. It's we who are destined for one another. We're not the extras in this movie. They're the extras in our movie, in our love story. And it's funny because it's confusing at times. Kind of the storyline's all jumbled up because that whole time you're kind of like drawn to these first two characters. And then they come and they steal the scene. They kind of usurp the, sh uh, the, sh the show and you start to uh, grow an affinity towards these other two guys. Now I'm sharing this and I'm hoping that this visual will remind us and help us keep in mind what we've been saying all along that we need to understand who the main character is in these chapters. Who the main character is in the series of the life of Abraham. I know it's a little misleading, but it's not Abraham. It's God. And so, unless we put our focus on the true protagonist of the story, we're going to be very confused, especially when we come across a passage or a chapter like this so that our understanding doesn't get all jumbled up. And I'm going to try to show us that by zooming in on these two characters, Sarah and Hagar. And at first, we may, we may be drawn to them as if they're the protagonists, but as we look closely, we're going to see it's not really about them, but it's been about God. And so that's the goal and the purpose for today. So in those 30 minutes, we're going to present Sarah and Hagar. And just look at those two lives, all right? So with that, let me pray for us again, and let's ask for God's help as we study his word. God, if your spirit, as we read, doesn't persuade us of our sin, convince us of our misery, convince us of our need for you, God, we're just reading words. We're just reading a story. But God, this is more than a story. This is an event that actually happened and that tells us what kind of God we have. May that kind of God be the God that we believe today in the here and now as we worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So first, let's look at Sarah. Uh, if you look in verse 1, we see that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Finally now, the day has come when she finally gives birth to her own son with Abraham Isaac. 
Now, ever since the promise of offspring, all the way back in chapter 12, we've been waiting for this moment. Finally, nine chapters later, and Sarah's response is fitting. She laughs. Just the meaning of his name, he laughs. Look in verse 6. Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, it's partly ridiculous of how old they are and how a son can be born, which is partly why they laugh, but it's also majority of them just laughter of joy, just celebration of what God has done in their lives. Now, by the end of this verse, by the end of verse 7, you can be drawn in, and you can start to grow a fondness towards Sarah. It seems like she's the main character in this episode. It makes sense, right? We see immediately the Lord visits Sarah, right? Not Abraham. Sarah conceives. Her line, her words, she has a speaking line in verses 6 and 7. But before we get used to Sarah being the main character, and before we grow attached to her, we see some tension in verse 8. We see that Isaac was weaned, which means he probably was a couple of years old. And at that time, they had a great feast when that happened because they could start to eat solid food now, and that was a cause to be very, very happy for their parents. So they're having this feast and celebration for Isaac, and then we see that Ishmael, he does something that bothers Sarah a lot. We see that he laughs. He laughs at Isaac. He laughs at Sarah. And it irks her. And it irks her because what he's doing is, even though this feast should be about Isaac, is to celebrate Isaac and to put the attention on Isaac, Ishmael does something to bring attention to himself. And he'll even act in an irritating way to do that. The ESV translates that word that Ishmael laughed. But you can also translate that word in other ways. The NIV, if you have that, it translates it as Ishmael mocked is, uh, Isaac. Kind of in this mocking tone, the opposite of what Isaac's name means. Now, we can see that Sarah was bothered. She was irked. Okay? But it was more than that because once she saw that Ishmael was laughing and mocking at Isaac, something came to mind, something triggered in her mind that says, you know what? He's trying to steal the show right now, and that could be the case in the future, where as he grows up, that he's going to be fighting for Abraham's inheritance. He's going to be wanting the attention on himself. And at the very least, all the blessings and inheritance that Isaac, my son, should be getting is going to be split between Isaac and Ishmael. So all of those thoughts started to come to Sarah, which is why she acted so harshly. She acted in a pretty mean way. She goes and tells Abraham, cast Ishmael out. Cast Hagar out. Get them out of my sight. Which seems to be a pretty harsh sentence for someone who just laughs, right? But it's because she was thinking about all of these things. And it's not just speculation. Look in verse 10. She says it herself. She says to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman, what, shall not be heir with my son Isaac. She's worried about Isaac's inheritance. And at this point, the rug kind of slips out under you because, you know, we started to grow fond of Sarah. We started to grow attached to her as if she's the main character. But she's not acting the way a heroine of the story should act, right? In fact, she's kind of acting like the villain of the story at this point. She's the one who's being really mean, casting poor Hagar and Ishmael out of the camp. And before we wag our fingers at Sarah, think about what's happening in her mind. What is she doing? Well, let's consider this. At the very least, Sarah understands 
she can't bring about God's promises in her life. She saw that when she couldn't give birth, she couldn't conceive. So at that point, she needed to depend on God. God, help me to have a child. And she looked to him for his uh, strength, for his deliverance, for him to show up in her life. She understands that she needs grace, at least for that. But then here, what we start to see is after God gives her grace, after God fulfills the promise of a son, she's now going back to her old ways of trying to hold on to her son trying to preserve his inheritance, trying to secure it with her own might, own means, own strength. And she does it by casting out Hagar and Ishmael. And so do you see the shift in tone, the way that she's looking at her son Isaac? Whereas before she says, God gave me Isaac from his goodness, from his mercy. But now she's thinking, I need to maintain his future out of my strength, not God's. And so we put it as bluntly as possible. We can say this to Sarah. If God's grace is what brought you Isaac in the first place, what makes you think that you're able to hold on to him without God's continuing grace? And before we shake our heads at Sarah, brothers and sisters, that's us. And how many times in our lives do we recognize God's blessing in our lives when we receive all of his goodness from the daily bread we eat the houses that we live in, the children that we have, our jobs, our money, whatever it may be, we're thankful, right? We say and lift up prayers of thanksgiving. God, we thank you for this and that. But then how quickly, like Sarah, how quickly do we turn into the Sarah of verse 9 where we think that after God's blessings, now it's up to us to secure them. It's up to us to hold on to that. God, thank you for this job. Now it's up to me to make sure that I do well and that I work myself up the ladder. Make sure that people recognize me from my own strength. Now, this isn't saying that we're to be negligent. You know, Sarah's not to just simply let go and, and let God and Isaac's upbringing. She is to do her part, but there reveals deep down inside who she really trusts in these kinds of statements. We like us. We trust ourselves. It's up to us. Parents, you know, God blessed you with this child. Now it's up to us as parents to ensure that this child excels at school, grows up in the faith, becomes a Christian, becomes Christ-like to others. For some reason, for somewhere down the line, we start to put that responsibility on ourselves as if we actually have the power to create change in someone's heart. We could give a lot of examples, but let me ask you, what are the Isaacs in your life? And here's a litmus test. Ask whether or not you're anxious about losing something. If God took something away in your life, would you be anxious? Would you be fearful? Perhaps losing that picture-perfect life situation that you want when you get home from work? That ideal child coming home and bringing all these accolades? That dream vacation you've been planning for all, all this time? Consider also how you live day to day and how involved God is in your functional living. And that's going to give you some clues of perhaps you, like Sarah, made this shift of you trying to hold on to these things with your own strength and your own grip. Paul Tripp writes this. He says, There is foolishness of living as if God doesn't exist or as if you don't need his authority, wisdom, power, and grace. And every time you take your life into your own hands and do whatever you want to do, no matter what, you are functionally denying the existence of God. 
Every time you make decisions as if your life belonged to you, you are denying the existence of God. Every time you buy into the delusion of independent wisdom, righteousness, and strength, you're telling yourself that you can live quite well without the presence, the power, and the grace of the one who made you. Every day that you live without God and your thoughts and his glory as your core motivation, you functionally deny the existence of God. Do you see what's going on? We can accept God's initial grace, but we also need to accept God's continuing grace every day of our lives. And that's where Sarah loses track. Her emotions and her actions shows, her, shows us the inner recesses of her heart in verse 9. Now, as we continue to read, we're going to come across a difficult verse in this early uh, verses. So we saw that Ishmael was laughing or, or mocking at Isaac when he was being weaned. Sarah sees that. She gets angry. She tells Abraham to cast them out of the family. She does it in a horrible manner. And what's difficult is once you read verse 12, what would you expect God to say at this point? Wouldn't you expect God to say, Sarah, no, what you're doing is evil. I need to protect poor, poor Hagar and Ishmael. But what's difficult in verse 12, he says to Abraham, listen to Sarah. You're like, what? God, no, that's not how you're supposed to act. But God said to him, do not be distressed about the boy and the slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. This is where we'll be very confused. Why God would support Sarah's selfish and cruel act toward Ishmael. And we're only going to be confused if we think Sarah's the main character. If we think it's about Sarah and we start to put our trust and hope and our affinity towards Sarah, we're going to be very disappointed. But if we consider that perhaps God is the main character, perhaps this is what God wanted all along in his sovereignty, and it's not as if God is submitting to Sarah's plans, but God is so sovereign that even in Sarah's sin and her wickedness, she can't escape what God had intended to do, which is to make sure Isaac is the son of promise. Do you see the difference? We're so drawn to Sarah's about her, we're going to be very confused why God is acting this way. But if we knew all along that it was about a child of a promise, that even though Sarah's acting in a wicked way, God's going to continue and hold true to the promises he made to Abraham. Your son Isaac will be your heir. And this is a classic case of that famous line, you know, in Genesis 50. As for you, you meant evil for me, against me, but God meant it for good. Sarah meant evil, but God intended for good. Let's look, at to see how, let's look to see how God's also the main character when we look at Hagar. When we look at Hagar, she starts to come into the forefront of the story, starting in verse 14. So at this point, Sarah's out of the picture. We start zooming in on Hagar. God tells Abraham to do what Sarah does, and he does so reluctantly. He sends Hagar, Ishmael off, and he gives him only a skin of water and some bread. And if you think about the situation, they're going out into this Arabian desert, just a woman and, and, and her son, just with a skin of water and some bread. They're not going to have much time to live. Uh, they know very well, and Abraham knows very well. He's sending them off to their deaths. It's only a matter of time, and that's what we see. They run out of water. They run out of bread. Now, at this point, when we start to track along, we start to feel sorry for Hagar. Now we start to grow fond of Hagar. We start to sympathize with her and Ishmael. And we're drawn to her. Why? Because we feel sorry for her. Perhaps now we shift our allegiance to Hagar rather than Sarah, who now acts like the villain of the story. 
But if you read closely, we're going to see again that the main character is not Hagar, nor is it Ishmael. You see, we might be drawn to them because we kind of see ourselves in them. Perhaps you like Hagar. You've been unjustly treated in your life. You've been cast out. You've been the recipient of all of these evil or heinous deeds against you. And you, you see yourself and you start to sympathize. You put yourself in the story. And Hagar comes to the forefront. Or perhaps you, you, you relate with Ishmael. You think, you know, like Ishmael, I've been forgotten. I've been neglected. I haven't been loved. And we start to uh, zoom in on Ishmael and see how our lives are like his. But let's look at Hagar. Is she the protagonist of this story? If she was, if she was the main character of the story, what we read, it would be very different from the way that we see this passage. You see, if she was the main story, here's how it would have happened. Hagar, she would have been at her lowest of lows. God would have intervened, and then she would have been strengthened. And like any good soap opera or any good story, she probably would have gone back to Sarah, confronted her, right? Either had the option of, of showing grace to her or, 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 or showing her dominance over her or something. The story would keep following Hagar, in other words. But it doesn't do that. In fact, here's another piece of evidence. Look at verse 16. She went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, and she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. So she's crying out, right? You can assume she's crying out to God. Now here's this. If she was the main character of this story, what would God do? God would respond to her cries, right? What do we see in the next verse? God doesn't listen to her cries. God's listening to the cries of the boy, Ishmael. And he heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar and responds to God calling to Ishmael, says to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. So we can see the attention now goes to Ishmael. So it's not Hagar. So now let's look at Ishmael. Is it Ishmael now? Well, we can see that when Hagar is rescued, when Ishmael is rescued, it's not because Hagar has something about her that God you know, must rescue her. And we look at Ishmael to see if he's the hero of the story, but we see that he's not either because if you remember, he's the one who initially mocked Isaac in the first place. He's not really hero material. And on top of that, if you noticed, throughout this whole passage, Ishmael's name is not even mentioned once. He's always referred to as the son of Hagar or the son of the slave woman or the boy how disrespectful is that? Your name doesn't even get featured. Definitely not the main character of this story. So if we see this, then we can ask, why does God respond to Ishmael? If Hagar's not the main character, if Ishmael's not the main character, and we see the answer is, it's not because there's something inherently good in Ishmael. It's not because Ishmael is so pitiful that, that he deserves rescuing. See, the reason why God rescues Ishmael it's because he's the son of Abraham, whom God made the covenant promises with. He's the one that Ishmael's associated with, the one who's associated, the one who God made a covenant with. And God didn't make that covenant with Hagar, but with Abraham. And the only reason why Hagar can even live and survive is because of her association with Abraham through Ishmael. It's not about her. And the only way Ishmael can live and be the father of a nation is because Ishmael's associated with Abraham, the one with whom God makes this everlasting covenant. 
You see, what the Bible does, it does draw you into these characters. Characters like Abraham, David, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael. But once you're drawn in and you can relate to them, you're going to see that they're not perfect. Once you start to relate to them, you're going to see that they're just as sinful, if not more sinful than we are. And we're going to see, yes, there are sinful people like Sarah. There are forgotten people like Hagar and Ishmael. They are unworthy. And we can only relate to them once we start to realize that we ourselves, we're the extras in God's story as well. And it's always been about God in our lives, not about us. Because Sarah, she's just as sinful, she's more treacherous than any other person in this passage. But she's connected to Abraham, which means that she gets to live. She gets to see Isaac grow. We, th- we see Ishmael, and as sorry as we feel for him, It's not inherently because he's so pitiful that he gets saved. No, he's saved because he's connected to Abraham, the one uh, who who he's associated with. That's all a result of God's promise. God says that he's going to make a people out of Abraham through Isaac, through David, down to Joseph and Mary, all the way down to Jesus Christ. And what do you see? That main character of God's story is none of these characters. It's not us. It's Jesus. Because Ishmael, being the son of Abraham, he receives the overflows of Abraham's blessings because of his connection with him. Not simply because his life is pitiful and he deserves it. Although God is compassionate, God is kind, he does see and he does hear. But the underlying reason why he intervenes at this time is not because he has something that's so attractive, but because he's connected with the son of the promise of Abraham. That overflow of Abraham's blessing comes to Ishmael. And that blessing to Ishmael is very very similar to the kind of blessing God gives to Abraham and Isaac, which is why God says to Abraham, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring shall be named. And he also says this of Ishmael, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also. Why? Because he is your offspring. Albeit it's just one nation. He doesn't get multitude of nations like Isaac and Abraham. But as an overflow of Abraham's blessing, he benefits as well. Likewise, brothers and sisters, the only reason why we can have confidence in being rescued in your wilderness wanderings from the sufferings of this life, the penalty for our sins as we receive the consequences, is not because there's something inherently good or pitiful in you that forces God to come and rescue you. The only reason why God can rescue us and he does rescue us is the question, who are you associated with? Are you associated with the Hagars and the Ishmaels? Or are you associated with Abraham, the one with whom God promises Jesus? It's not because we can't can't put forth Sarah as our representative, right? Especially the way that we try to live functionally apart from God, just like Sarah's trying to do. And the only reason why we can have confidence is because we have Abraham, we have Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me except through me. I want to end with this illustration that I heard a few times, and it really gets across this idea of this question of who are you associated with? Let me ask you this question. In the Old Testament, what's the greatest redemptive story that we read about? And you can probably come up with a lot of things, but one particular story that's really powerful is the splitting of the Red Sea. Remember, 
It's a time where, where Moses is leading the people of God out. The Egyptians are chasing them. They're in front of this great uh, bank of water, and they're trying to cross. And then at that moment, Moses, he, 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 he puts down his staff, and we see the water split. If you've seen that movie, Prince of Egypt, you kind of know what I'm talking about. There's these huge walls of water, and you see like whales uh, kind of swimming in and out, and, and, and it's, it's really uh, miraculous. Now, I want to ask you this. As the people of God are walking across, there's probably different kinds of people in that group. I bet there's one who's going something like this, saying something like this. Praise God. God is so good. Look at what he's doing. The Egyptians are behind us. God is on our side. I saw a great whale. I've never even seen that before. Hallelujah. There's probably another one, another Israelite saying, oh my gosh, we're going to die. I think I just saw a whale. <laughs> one missed turn and we're done. On top of that, there's Egyptians behind us. We're going to die. Now let me ask you, who makes it across? Both. Why? Not because each of them has something inherently good in them, but because they were associated with Moses, a representative. And it points forward to the need that you and I have. There's nothing good, nothing pitiful that makes us say, God, you have to come and save me. But the question is, who's representing you? Is it Jesus Christ? And if you're holding on to Christ, as he holds on to you, he will come and rescue you, whatever wilderness wandering you're in. And we have that as our hope. Let's pray. Here at Renewal, as we end our time, um, we as a church, we pray and as, uh, ask God to continue to convict us in what we just heard. And perhaps to end, let me read the words of this hymn. And perhaps it can give words to your prayers. The hymn is entitled, None But Jesus. It says, Weeping will not save me. Weeping will not save me. Although my face were bathed in tears, that could not allay my fears, could not wash the sins of years. Weeping will not save me, for Jesus wept and died for me. Jesus suffered on the tree. Jesus waits to make me free. He alone can save me. Working will not save me, purest deeds that I can do. Holiest thoughts and feelings too cannot form my soul anew. Working will not save me. Jesus worked. He died for me. Jesus suffered on the tree. Jesus waits to make me free. He alone can save me. Let's pray like that, saying, God, I confess, only you, only Christ can save me, whatever I'm going through at this moment and for all of my life. Let's pray like that.